Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And it's Saturday. Time to go into the vault. We may get eaten alive. Well, I think we're going to be safe because it certainly this episode is about sex cannibals. So the vault does contain sex cannibals. However, they're they, not human. They're not human sex cannibals. So you are not going to encounter, uh, you know, any grotesque uh, tales of, uh, of of humanoid sex cannibals in this episode. Right. But if we were like bachelor spiders, there'd be a whole other story. Yeah. If you were a spider listening to this uh, podcast, uh, then, uh, you know, I would say, tr- you know, proceed with caution. This one was a lot of fun. We hope you enjoy it, too. It originally aired Thursday, March 10th, 2016. Uh, So I'd say without any further ado, let's throw you right into the sex cannibals. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And my name is Joe McCormick, and we're going to get right to it today because we're going to talk about sexual cannibalism. Right, and I do want to just throw out here right at the top, this is not going to concern human cannibalism at all. I know that uh, in in the past when we've covered uh, cannibalistic topics, some uh, listeners have actually skipped the episode thinking that there might be human cannibals in it. I'm just going to let you know if you've made it this far. No human cannibals is, uh, will uh, cannibalism will occur in this episode. Is that some people's big thing? It's like, oh, you're going to talk about cannibalism. I can't go on. Well, you know, I mean, some listeners, some of our listeners, really want the dark content, and that's uh, why. And 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 we're certainly happy to go there, and and as as well as strip away some of the uh, the, the taboo and the, the the mystery surrounding those dark topics. Uh, but I know that not everyone wants to go down that path with us. So just want to let everyone know. We're not going down the human cannibal path. Okay, so we are going to be talking about animal sexual cannibalism. And this is a topic that's been touched on on the show before. I know you and Julie in the past did an episode uh, about cannibalism in the animal world. Right. Uh, But today we wanted to focus specifically on sexual cannibalism because of all of the, the interesting evolutionary interplay here. Uh, yeah. the, the sort of trade-off of costs and benefits that would lead a species to at some rate fairly often enough that people would notice eat during sex, eat each other during sex or after sex. Yeah, and it's the interesting thing about this topic is that on one hand it is very simplistic, and I'll get into the simplistic argument shortly, but then it's also not as cut and dry as you might think. It's an area where there are multiple uh, theories as to as to how this evolved and exactly how it's working, and some of those are actually conflicting theories as well. So it's a uh, it's a subject with a lot of meat on it, yeah, a lot of sexy meat on it. <laughs> okay, so w- what's the basic gist of why sexual cannibalism happens? This might be kind of obvious, but we should get it on the table so that we have a place to start. So let's say you have two spiders, and they they size each other up, mm-hmm. and they say it's time to mate. You know, we'll pass our genes on. But some way through the mating procedure, the female sort of grabs hold of the male and sinks her fangs into him and drains all of his delicious juices. Right. Why did that happen? <laughs> and that's and that is the big question, right? Why does this evolve and why does this occur? Certainly not in every species. It's actually a very rare occurrence uh-huh. in the natural world. Uh, but where it does occur... Uh, we can't help but study it. Well, actually, we should start with the simple side. It's clear why this happens from the female side. A lot of the question is why the male would participate in this. Right. But but why does the female eat the male? 
Well, for energy, of course. I mean, yeah. that I mean that basically comes down to stripping away the human complexity surrounding cannibalism in general, because ultimately, flesh is energy, flesh is food, uh, flesh is life. In addition, and, and so in addition to having all sorts of cultural hangups about cannibalism, you know, we don't have any problem wasting boatloads of food and energy, right? So we, we kind of have to put that aside to think of it. But yeah, in the in the natural world, you see plenty of cases of just straight up cannibalism, and it all comes down to a basic economy of the energy. So a, a mother's young die. She might consume those young because what are they now but uh, empty vessels uh, made up of energy? Yeah, I think this is something that's hard for us to understand because by and large, if you are a human being listening to a podcast, you probably are, are lucky. You live a fortunate existence right. where you have decent amounts of access to food. You're, you're probably not living constantly at the edge of starvation. Right. And animals are sort of built with the assumption that they will be living constantly at the edge of starvation. Have you ever, you ever noticed how if you have a dog at home – uh, if you're out walking the dog and there's something that smells even remotely like it might be food, the dog's going to try to put it in its yeah, mouth. Yeah, better go ahead it. and get it in the mouth anyway, see what it tastes like. And and you and I would never think that way. I mean, it's <laughs> like, uh, it smells like it could be food. Who knows if it would hurt me? Better safe than sorry. I'm just going to eat it. Yeah. Um, but in the animal kingdom, out in the wild, that sort of strategy might make a lot more sense because if you are constantly at risk of having your life extinguished or your competitive power diminished by lack of access to energy resources, you'll take anything you can get. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, we also have to think outside of the, the sort of human male-female scenario, right, and get down to the the basic reality that I feel like is, is, is far more – obvious when you start looking at uh, in the world of, uh, of insects and arachnids uh, and a few other species, and that is that the females are the species. And the male is just this, uh, essentially this mutation that's necessary uh, to enable genetic diversity through sexual reproduction. So he's, he only has this one purpose anyway. He's just this genetic material heat-seeking missile to aid <laughs> in reproduction. So why not eat him, right? Uh, his job is done. And, and there's there that gets to be a more complex question as we'll explore later. But, you know, it, it makes sense if you just look at the pure math of the scenario. Yeah. And to get even weirder, I mean, you might be able to say that neither the male nor the female is really the purpose of the species. The phenotype, the body, yes. none of that is the species. The species is a gene pool. It's yeah. this abstract this, concept. It's really more of a movement as opposed to a physical thing because, yeah, yeah that. It, it's not the the little creatures that exist for, especially in the the, the insect world, often very slim periods of time. It is that uh, that continued movement, genetic movement through time. Yeah, but but especially the males, you might say, like if uh, if there is a sexual dimorphism in a species, a different in body, a difference in body plans between male and female, and it just you look at it and you say, wow, it really looks like there's more going into the female. She's bigger, she has more survival capacity. It really sometimes can look to a human observer like, well, that's the the female is what the species is, and the male is just sort of this thing that exists to mate. And yeah, and I think you, you can make a pretty strong case for that. Uh, <laughs> 
the, the female is the, the primary member of the species. Now, already we're talking, I think, in sort of uh, perhaps unscientific terms, like we're using anthropomorphization and we're using our, uh, our, our sort of human judgment of how things just seem to look to us based on the, the way mm-hmm. we think about relationships between animals, probably mostly based on the way we think about relationships between humans. And this is sort of an inherent problem in studying things like uh, animal mating practices and reproduction. And especially, especially sexual cannibalism, it we just can't help but infuse it with all of the sort of social markers of how we view relationships as humans. Yeah, and that's true of not only you know, consumers, readers, outsiders. It's true not only of science communicators like our, like ourselves, but also scientific researchers themselves. There was actually a paper on this. Yeah, 2010 paper, Sexual Stereotypes, The Case of Sexual Cannibalism. This was from the UK's University of St. Andrews School of Biology. They looked at about they, they looked at a larger sample and they had to, to whittle it down, but they ended up looking at around 210 relevant papers dealing with sexual cannibalism. And they found that females were more likely to be, to be described using active words and males with reactive words. And then a number of the words used to describe cannibalistic females were highly loaded, suggesting a negative stereotype of sexually aggressive females. Uh, and then the males were more likely to be, to be described as, as making a sacrifice <laughs> while the females were just, you know, voracious widows. Um, That's funny. Yeah, voracious is a word I did see pop up in the literature, in the scientific literature yeah. on sexual cannibalism a lot. And, and there are some good points to be made about – you know, even though this is sort of a tendency that's hard to overcome, I know we're going to do it in this episode plenty. Mm-hmm. We're going to anthropomorphize. It's just how it's just, we talk about yeah, it's things. It's how we talk about it. It's how we understand the topics, how we conceptualize them in our head. Uh, there, there is a good case to be made, I think, that scientists should do their best to avoid this. And one simple reason is that uh, these kind of socially charged words are vague. Yeah. You know, they're not uh, – they don't – they don't deal in easily reproducible quantities. So if somebody wants to redo your experiment somewhere else, can they tell uh, what you mean by voracious? I mean, yeah. it seems like it makes more sense to just talk about numerical conditions. So a spider that attacks this percentage of prey within this, you know, uh, radius of range is is voracious. Yeah. And then, I mean, just overall, it's detrimental to view uh, a species normalcy through the lens of our own species abnormality. So, uh, because I mean, for instance, we can study ducks without going, "Holy crap!" Can you imagine if humans laid eggs like a duck? <laughs> so, it's a different creature. It's a different species. It is an inhuman thing. And I guess anytime I study insects, I always come back, maybe problematically, to um, the line of uh, of uh, Doctor Brundle in The Fly talking about. Uh, insect politics and about yeah. how there are no insect politicians. Right. Um, which, which I think is a great line, not only within the context of that film, but also in terms of, of looking at any of these scenarios where something through our lens, through our lens of human normalcy, may be just really horrific and monstrous and we want to cast this insect as a villain and this uh, as a, a poor suffering martyr, but it is an, an utterly inhuman system. And there's no getting around that. I'm sorry. I'm not listening to you because I'm imagining uh, the fly with a duck instead of a fly. <laughs> so Seth Brundle gets transformed into part duck and he's got, he's, uh, he's got a bill. 
Well, you know, Howard the Duck and The Fly came out in the same year. 1986? Yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's a good year for film. Good year for film. In fact, we just had a How Stuff Works Now article come out on that. Send all of your Howard the Duck hate mail to blow the mind at HowStuffWorks.com. No, but moving on from how weird it would be if humans were part duck, uh, we should look at the the evolution of sexual cannibalism. We're going to talk about some specific cases later in this episode of, of species that practice it and what we have learned from them in recent studies. But where do we typically see sexual cannibalism in the animal kingdom? Like how come you don't usually see a female cat eat a male cat after sex? Well, I mean, there's some biting, I think, sometimes. But um, no, for the most part, we're looking at insects and arachnids, uh, spiders and scorpions being the primary of research. There's some insects such as... uh, such as uh, uh, Mantids. Man- mantid species. Uh, and I believe there are also some... Um, uh, some evidence to suggest that there are some gastropod and copiopod cases. But in the, for the most part, though, we're dealing with, especially with spiders and scorpions and, the, and, uh, and, and mantis uh, uh, species, we're dealing with highly solitary predatory animals, yeah. which I think is, is key, especially uh, regarding some of the theories regarding sexual cannibalism. Right. So if you want to keep in mind that they typically aren't the most social animals right. <laughs> that eat each other after sex, this might help inform our ideas about how this evolved. Yeah, these are, uh, to anthropomorphize, these are lone killers. These are wanderers right? <laughs> that are just out there on the highway uh, eating what they need to eat to survive. I'd say even if you don't want to infuse it with uh, with human concepts of good and evil, you could easily say that sexual cannibalism is a chaotic neutral trait. Yeah, yeah, I would think so. <laughs> so... Um, but but so like we've said, it is rare in the animal kingdom. You don't see it in most species. And why is that? Well, on one on one level, I think we definitely have to again look to the the solitary predatory nature of these particular species. And then there's also just cannibalism as a whole. If cannibalism is too essential to the species, then you it, it eventually is going to have an economically um, detrimental effect, right? Right. So imagine your standard sexual cannibalistic interaction. Mm-hmm. Uh, a female spider has a web. Male spider approaches the web, climbs onto the web, mates with the female, may or may not successfully impregnate her, and the female eats the, eats the male spider, kills him, right. drains all his fluids, gets energy from it, but the male spider can mate no more. His right. days of passing on his genes are now done. So this interaction works out pretty well for the female spider. I mean, so you can see why her genes would encourage such, such an interaction. But the but question is, why yeah. would the male do that? Why, why does it uh, genetically con- – I mean, again, we're using anthropomorphic terms like consent. But I would say, why do its genes consent to this interaction where it has a strong chance of being eaten? Indeed, that's one of the, the big questions here. And one of the questions that a number of these theories um, of sexual cannibalism evolution explore. So at this point, we should really start talking about what those theories are and uh, and then break into some of the examples that explore how they work. Yeah, so there are several conflicting or competing hypotheses about the evolution of sexual cannibalism. And we should say that more than one can be true in different cases. Right. Yeah, there's some overlap here for sure. Yeah. Uh, But I think one thing to keep in mind during these explanations is that there are different ways that evolution can pay for a trait. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, let's say you have a trait that makes you – there's something about your brain that makes you really likely to kick people in the face at the first time you meet them. Right. Um, there, there are two ways that could come through in your genes according to evolutionary theory. One, one way is that the trait itself is beneficial overall. People who kick people in the face first time they meet just happen to have more kids than people who don't. So it could be beneficial. Or it could be it could be an unintended side effect of a very beneficial trait. So it could be that there's actually not a good – there's nothing good that comes from kicking people in the face when you first meet them. But you're really good at kicking people in the face the rest of the time when exactly. it is needed. So you're much, much better at defending yourself against predators. Yeah. Uh, so you just happen to be kicking crazy and and this is just sort of – and you're so good at defending yourself for predators, this kicking gene survives even though it's not particularly helpful in the case of kicking strangers in the face when you first meet them. Right. So the first of these uh, several theories we're going to mention here is adaptive foraging. So this one's pretty basic. A starving uh, female mates, the male is there, she's hungry, she's going to need energy. Why not go ahead and eat him during either during the act or immediately thereafter? Eating the male increases her chance of survival, gives her a meal-based power-up. Uh, and uh, as a as a as a sort of side effect too, uh, her lover uh, can't help produce any spawn that end up rivaling her own for resources. Okay, but essentially it comes down to I'm just I'm adapting to the, the, the what food is available to me, and here is a meal in front of me right now. Okay, so this is sort of the the opportunism hypothesis. Right, it's just saying that like, look, you know, I the the meal is worth it essentially. Right now, some of the the critics argue that. The males in many of these cases, they actually make pretty poor meals. They're not really going to make or break the female. Uh, but then there are cases where they say that, hey, the, the female is actually able to acquire crucial proteins or lipids from the male that she eats that she might not otherwise get from her standard predatory diet. Okay, so I, I'm thinking th- this is saying that the the sexual cannibalism is itself an adaptation. It, right. it is itself a trait that is encouraged because overall it's beneficial to the spider gene pool. Yeah, the, uh, the reproducing. Or not, not to the gene pool. I mean, it's, I'm not taking a species level evolution mm-hmm. here. It would be beneficial to the genes themselves in the animals that do it. Yeah, the, the females who eat their male have just one little power up over those who that do not. Yeah. And the idea here is that if this is very much a kicking people in the face the first time you meet them pays because, off. Right. It's a good thing. Yeah. Okay. Uh, but then there's another uh, hypothesis that this is one I've read about in some of the studies I looked up here. It's the sort of, I think it's turned the aggressive spillover hypothesis. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is more that other idea we were talking about, that there are some traits that are very beneficial, but they encourage side effects. So one trait, for example, might be that a, that a female is very aggressive in chasing down prey. Right. It has genes that lead it to be a total killer. It's just a go-getter. It sees something moving. It's like, going to eat that. <laughs> uh, and this might be very beneficial to this creature when it's trying to survive in the wild. It, it's, it's very good at chasing down things, killing them, and eating them. But these same genes also sometimes – they get applied in the wrong direction. Yeah, like to anthropomorphize the situation, it's it's like imagining that the uh, the spider or the scorpion in the scenario is like a a, a female wrestler who, uh, in in the act of making love, cannot help. Like the muscle memory, just an instincts kick in, and she has to throw a suplex or two or put somebody in a submission hold. Right. Um, she's just the, the 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 female in this scenario is just so 
aggressive, just so just amped up and ready to go that the um, the predatory nature just kicks in and she ends up consuming the part or all of the male. Yeah. Now, is there any evidence for this? I think there's some. Yeah, it depends. I mean, in some species of spider, yes, researchers have observed higher sexual cannibalism rates among females that also attack prey uh, at a faster rate than other females they have, they've observed. I want to talk about one of these studies in a bit. Okay. But then in other species, there's no correlation. So yeah. it, that's, the, that's one of the, the issues too, is you're dealing with, you're not dealing with just one species that's engaging in uh, sexual um, uh, cannibalism. You're dealing in multiple species, uh, some are rather diverse from one another that have, uh, uh, in many cases, independently uh, evolved this adaptation. Yeah. Now, one, uh, one hypothesis I saw just kind of mentioned on the internet, but I didn't see in any of the scientific literature I was mm -hmm. looking at was the mistaken identity hypothesis. I, I couldn't tell if there's really anything to this. The, I saw it mentioned, I mean, the basic idea here is the female is saying, are you food? Are you my lover? Well, let me just take a bite out of you. I can't tell. I guess you're my enemy. I'll just bite into you. Uh, the only place that I saw this, this mentioned. This is the person who kicks people in the face because he's nearsighted. Right, exactly. Enemy or lover, I think enemy, I'm going to kick. Yeah, so the, the only place I saw this mentioned was in um, uh, Kenwin Blake uh, Suttle's uh, paper, The Evolution of Sexual Cannibalism. Uh and he said that there's just no empirical evidence to support this theory. Mm -hmm. uh, for instance, he says that the, um, uh, the Phytopus spiders uh, offer a strong argument against mistaken identity uh, because uh, particularly among the, uh, the Salticids, you have the highest visual uh, uh, acuity of all arachnids. The, I think that's jumping spiders, right? Yes. Uh, and he tells us that when you take into account... Um, cannibalism during and after a copulation, that would seem to even further eliminate the possibility. So the, the idea here is that, yeah, they're not just blind dummies in these cases. They're, they have senses available to them to determine if this is a, a member of their own species or a, a solid uh, uh, outsider prey species. Yeah. Now, of course, one other uh hypothesis that we could say competes with these and, and maybe sometimes overlaps with them is that it's just – it's sexual selection. Yeah. It's it's females being choosy about which males they mate with or whether intentionally or not. Um, and this is encouraging pairing with uh, stronger or fitter or more appropriate males through a tendency to eat the males. Yeah, it's just it's kind of a it's not uh, it's not me it's you scenario. So I'm going to eat you instead. Uh, you're not really uh, you're not really husband material. Maybe you're more meal material, right? Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, the, the basic hypothesis here entails the notion that the, the cannibal female just rejects unacceptable males and eats them. And that smaller, unfit males are better suited as meals. Larger ones are the better mates. Though you also see this re reversed in some cases with females favoring smaller mates. Uh, again, it kind of depends on the species. Right. Well, as we know from so many great evolutionary biologists before, it's not always the strongest that's the fittest. Right. Uh, the it, Bigger doesn't always necessarily mean better. Fitter can mean a lot of different things in different environments. And, and the environment can include the sexual selection environment, the, the gene environment in which you're competing. Yeah. And the, the mere fact that both varieties survive often indicates that both are valued forms of that species. Uh, and there are a number of different mate choice splinter uh, theories as well, uh, running the uh, anthropomorphic uh, gamut for all the reasons you might uh, 
you know, mate, reject, or cannibalize your spider lover. So there you have it. Those are the, the basic theories regarding sexual cannibalism. All right. So now I think it's time to take a quick break. But when we come back, we're going to take a look at our rogues gallery of cannibals. All right, we're back. Uh, who do we have first here, Joe? Well, I thought it would be interesting because of a specific uh, study I, I found to look at the the cannibalistic burrowing wolf spider, the Lycosa hispanica. Ooh. And this is from a paper called Does Female Personality Determine Mate Choice Through Sexual Cannibalism? It was published in the journal Ethology in 2013 and uh, it was carried out by some uh, a research group at the Experimental Station of Arid Zones, E-E-Z-A-C-S-I-C in Spain. And, and here's what's going on. Sometimes you want to eat your mate, but you cannot wait for the mating. <laughs> this is a problem uh, because obviously – so we've talked about the benefits for the female of sexual cannibalism. She gets to mate and she gets to pass on her genes and she also gets a meal and we've been debating the, the benefits for the male. But what if the female eats – she wants to eat the mate so bad that she eats him before they mate? Hmm. Uh, I mean, that seems like a a maladaptive trait. Yeah, it would seem like it's gotten out of control here. Yeah, and what they found is that this happens a lot, actually. So sometimes this specific uh, tarantula, this wolf spider, doesn't even wait for sex before eating the potential mate. So why is that? What determines if the female wolf spider attacks a potential mate before the mating? Uh, is it how hungry she is? If so, this would support uh, the adaptive foraging hypothesis perhaps. Mm-hmm. Uh, or is it her personality? And if that's the case, it might support the aggressive spillover. Uh, is it the fitness of the male? This might support some form of uh, sexual selection or mate choice. Right. So the researchers decided to try to isolate these and, and figure out which one is the most likely. So they studied a group of female wolf spiders to see how aggressive they were in feeding. And some were insanely aggressive. They, they were just going to town immediately on any prey such as beetles while others were more cautious uh, or they, they used the term docile <laughs> – <laughs> which I thought was funny, uh, essentially more reticent hunters. They just didn't jump on prey quite as quickly. Right. And then they took these same females they'd studied and offered the females a random selection of males to, for mating to see what would happen. Uh, and you know what? The female personality actually seemed to play a big role. So I want to read a, a quote from a press release by the, one of the study authors, Ruben Rabineda Bueno. Uh, and the author said, More cannibalistic females were also more voracious toward their prey and thus better nourished. This is surprising since they have more nutritive resources to invest in their offspring before finding the first males. Uh, And then said their priority should be ensuring the firm's fertilization of their eggs instead of eliminating their potential donors. So this is kind of counterintuitive. You might expect that the hungrier the female, the more likely she would eat the male. But that's not what what they found. The more aggressive females, they pounced on the prey more. They also ate more. They were less hungry and they were more likely to attack, kill and eat the males. Huh. So – it sounds a little bit more like aggressive spillover to me. Yeah. So unless it's an aggressive spillover, it would seem to be evolutionarily 
counterintuitive. Uh, she, she's well nourished. She should be prioritizing the fertilization of her eggs. Uh, instead, she just kills and eats her potential <laughs> mates. Uh, but this makes it look like baseline predation tendencies play a larger role in whether or not the male gets eaten. Uh, though you could possibly also look at this and interpret it as a form of mate testing, like uh, you know the the weaker males are the ones who are more likely to get eaten. Yeah. All right. The next one we have here is the the raft spider, and this is uh, uh, Dolomites uh, fimbriatus. And according to a 2015 study from the University of Melbourne, these spiders do seem to be testing the males. And this would be mate fitness, rather than engaging in a, an aggressive spillover. Okay, how does this work? Well, this is how they 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 studied it. They watched a bunch of spiders mate, of course. They, yes, they watched. Yeah, the first trial consisted of eleven. Uh, saw the, that eleven of sixteen females uh, copulated, then attacked the males during or immediately after copulation. Uh, four of these attacks were fatal. Okay. Then they did a second trial where six of eight females that copulated attacked the males with two fatalities. So th this is interesting. Even in these, uh, I think one thing we should point out is that even in the species that practice sexual cannibalism, it doesn't always happen. Right. Yeah. So in in these cases, aggression level did not seem to play a factor. So th again, they're they're looking at how aggressive a hunter does this female appear to be outside the context of mating. Uh, rather, male size, female age, and her virginity uh, seem to be more important factors. So females were marginally more likely to attack smaller males. I don't know if there's another word for this, but I, I kept seeing this pop up over and over again, the virginity of a spider. It just seems like it would <laughs> – that seems like such a human word. Uh, like it's weird to think of a spider. I, I don't know. It would just seem to make more sense to say a spider who had not yet mated. Yeah, spider virginity or certainly virginity of a spider sounds like a wonderful name for a short horror collection. Uh -huh. uh, but um, actually we'll explore in, in, a, in another example I'm going to get to uh, in a bit. You'll see where spider virginity, for lack of a better word, does become more of an important consideration in sexual cannibalism. Yeah. Now, one other interesting consideration to take into account is the male decision-making process in sexual cannibalism mm -hmm. cases. So, so a male is approaching a potential mate. He, I want to say he knows. I mean, again, it's an insect, so he probably doesn't really consciously know. But something about his uh, behavioral programming, quote, knows – that he might get eaten in some scenarios. Right. So he has to do a kind of uh, behavioral cost-benefit analysis. What, what makes a delicious bachelor insect decide to roll the dice with a hungry female in the case of something like a praying mantis where the female in many cases eats the male during or after sex? So there's a 2012 paper published in PLOS1 that uh, explores these decision factors and mate choice in sexual cannibalism uh, in praying mantises. It's called Low Mate Encounter Rate Increases Male Risk Taking in Sexually Cannibalistic Praying Mantis. Um, so you've got a male uh, of a praying mantis species like Tenodera sinensis. And uh, this is this is a common praying mantis. I think it's referred to as Chinese mantis. Yes. Uh, but it, uh, it it has to make a calculation of risk versus reward when approaching a female. Now, I, I've read in one source that about 16 percent of the time a male of this species copulates with a female in the wild, he gets slaughtered and eaten. So 
those aren't good numbers. I mean, you <laughs> you wouldn't want to copulate if you got slaughtered 16 percent of the time. Uh, so there's a chance of getting eaten, but of course there's also the positive, a chance of reproducing. So how does the male decide whether to roll the dice? And uh, the authors of this study point out two major factors to consider. Number one is the level of predatory risk imposed by the females. So some females are more likely to eat you than other ones. And number two is the frequency of mating opportunities for the males. How many chances has this male had to copulate with other females? Right. So to study these things, the researchers artificially controlled the dating pool, essentially. Specifically, they allowed some males of this praying mantis species to encounter and court more females than others. And then they controlled the risk of predation by the females on the males. Uh, one thing to note is that a, ma a male can tell when a female is hungry. And the hungrier she is, the more cautious they are. However... What they found is that if the male is sex-starved, he will take risks with hungrier females. Uh, and in the wild, it's worth pointing out, as we said earlier, most of the time you're going to be on the verge of starvation. Females in the wild are usually hungry. So what, what did they find? They found sexually frustrated males are – and those are, again, sorry, anthropomorphic yeah. language. The males who had had fewer chances to encounter females and court them, the ones that are sexually frustrated, mm -hmm. were willing to take more risks with more dangerous females in return for chances to mate. And the males who had had more time around females, had been exposed to more females, they were more cautious, approached the females more slowly and stayed farther away. Um, and the the ones who had not been exposed to females, they basically just said to hell with it and they ran in there. Okay. So, yeah, it, it comes down to what kind of risk are they willing to take to carry out their gen genetic mission? Yeah. And then there was also a second experiment where the researchers tried this with hungry females and well-fed females. And they found that the hungry females plus sexually frustrated males, uh, the, that combination did in fact lead to cannibalism. <laughs> Uh, they said, quote, greater risk-taking behavior by males with low mate encounter rates resulted in high rates of sexual cannibalism when these males were paired with hungry females. So it essentially paints a picture of how to make a male praying mantis suicidal. You, <laughs> you take away his access to, to lady friends. Yeah, yeah, there you go. Okay, but we, we, should look, we should get back to some spiders because the classic example of uh, sexual cannibalism in the wild is going to be the black widow. But, but let, let's look at a relative of the black widow. That's right. We're going to look at uh, redback spiders uh, who are relatives and they have males that are seemingly quite willing to take the, the risk of being cannibalized. It's another one of these species where we see some, some rather intense uh, sexual dimorphism here because the... Uh, uh, the, the, the females are, are far larger while the, uh, the males the, are, are tiny, about the size of a grain of rice. Females so, live for up to two years while males generally only make it four to eight weeks. Oh, man. Yeah. So, so th that's one example like we were talking about at the beginning. Like we, we can't help but overlaying our sort of social values onto the lives of these insects. But it really does look there like the female is what's being valued somehow by nature and the male is just kind of there to provide some sperm and disappear. Yeah, and, and you know, it also comes from our attachment to life, I think, too, where you say, well, one lives longer, one's got a bigger body, one seems to have more of a, a sensory experience of the world. Whereas, I mean, it really comes down to they each have their genetic mission. They both carry it out. Yeah. Ultimately, hey, you could say the male wins because he did it 
faster. He got to the finish line. <laughs> Mission accomplished. Uh, no longer wasting resources. Uh, but uh, during copulation among the, the redback spiders, the smaller male spider uh, positions itself above the female's jaws. And this uh, apparent uh, male... Here I am. Yeah, here I am. I'm right here. And this uh, apparent uh, male uh, complicity in sexual cannibalism uh, is favored by sexual selection because cannibalized spiders receive a number of uh, paternity advantages. Oh, really? So there, there are documented cases here that show that it's better to be cannibalized. So it would seem. So, or genetically better. Yeah. Not so much for the individual. Not, yeah, but again, then we're, we're, we're projecting conscious experience uh, onto these, uh, these guys. Yeah. So cannibalized males copulate longer and they fertilize more eggs than those who survive. Okay. Okay. So that's one advantage. Uh, another advantage, females are more likely to reject subsequent suitors after consuming their first mate. Uh, and these results uh, represent uh, empirical evidence for uh, what is sometimes referred to as uh, male uh, copulatory suicide as an adaptive behavior. And of course, but of course, that's a highly uh, anthropomorphizing term. So to back to our analogy, th this is again saying this strangely counterintuitive seeming behavior is itself being selected for. It's not like a byproduct of something. It is itself the trait that's beneficial. Right. Kicking people in the face is good. Yes. And then there's this. Uh, they deposit a sperm plug. And so this is a small part of their copulatory organ that stays inside the female. Uh, and then it prevents any future males from successfully fertilizing her eggs, meaning that males have to mate with a virgin spider to maximize their reproductive success. Okay. So competition is tough then for the male redback spider for, for right. a, a couple of different reasons here. And they only get that one mating opportunity to carry it out. That's it. And given the whole sperm plug thing, they have to act fast and they also might get eaten. So, so be it. But they also have to make sure that they have enough energy to carry out the deed. Interesting. Yeah. And this is so where... They, so they might not. They might fail. They might be too weary to survive the copulation long and or not survive, but to perform the copulation correctly. Right, and this is where we get into. Uh, I think it's helpful to think of the male in a weaponized sense as a he is he is a warhead that is that has sent on a mission to reach a destination. He has to have the appropriate navigational tools and fuel to to reach that destination. But as it is with you know in rocketry, you. You don't you, you don't want to supply too much fuel. You want just enough fuel to get where you're going, right? And that actually plays into the development of the male redback spider. Huh. According to a 2006 University of Toronto study, the speed of their development actually depends on the density of females in their surroundings. When males can smell females uh, in abundance, they develop rapidly, uh, settling for a smaller body size and less fat reserves. Uh, uh, all in all so that he can get to those virgin females sooner. Uh, and if there, are if there are plenty around, he doesn't need the fat preserves in order to survive a long search for a mate. But likewise, if he can smell, uh, you know, he doesn't smell any females in the vicinity or there are very few, then they're going to go ahead and develop those, those fat reserves so that he can uh, actually survive a longer trip. Oh, wow. So it's uh, sexually strategic storage of, of energy. Yeah, exactly. And if there are a lot of males in the area already, they tend to go smaller on size, but with greater fat stores to sustain them through, and I love this, 
the extended courtship rituals in which the male has to essentially play music on the female's web, just like, like strumming the, the chords for up to eight hours at a time. What? Yeah, and if she, apparently if she doesn't like the song he's playing, she doesn't necessarily eat him. She may just swat him off the web. Uh, we We are just... We are jumping the anthropomorphism shark here. Yeah. I am I am so sorry to the people who don't want to hear the anthropomorphism because we have gone off the deep end. <laughs> How is there any way we could do this topic otherwise? For some reason no, it, it just I, demands this biased, inappropriate language. I think the thing is if you strip away the the anthropomorphism, it ultimately becomes less interesting to talk about, well, less course, interesting yeah. to listen to, and harder to convey. Because instead of saying he plays her a love song on a spider web, I have to get into a, a far stuffier um, biological language about what's actually going on. And ultimately, I'm conveying the, the same thing. Like it's either easier just to say, hey, this is going to be a little anthropomorphic. So right. just be aware. <laughs> <laughs> well, I didn't mean that as a criticism. No, I no, mean, no. I'm, I'm doing it too. Uh, yeah. I mean, what, what does it take, though, for a spider to become good at playing the strings? Does he have to practice? I don't know. It's certainly not uh, extensive practice because he really has to jump right in there. Right, yeah. Uh, so he here's one thing I was wondering. It seems like in every case we look at of sexual cannibalism, it's the female eating the male. And this obviously mm -hmm. makes sense because the female is the egg-carrying member of the species. So, I mean, it just wouldn't make sense for a male to eat a female after copulation because that would destroy all chances of, of reproduction happening from the, you know, you would eat the female and then the fertilized eggs would not survive probably. And then what, what was the point of copulation? That just seems like wasted energy resources. But is there any case where some version of this could happen? There is. Interestingly enough, we do find an example of reverse sexual cannibalism in the uh, Micaria sociabilis spiders. It essentially boils down to a form of, of mate, male mate selection, much like that employed by various uh, female cannibals. Oh, so again, I this, see. The, it, it depends kind of when you, when you discuss like how unrealistic would male sexual cannibalism be. It kind of depends on which theory you're throwing at it. So if you're going with the mate selection, yeah, you could see where uh, a male could say, nope, don't want to breed with that that female. That breeding with that female is not going to give me optimal results on my genetic mission here. Better off that I eat her. Okay, okay. And uh, so in 2013, a team of researchers from uh, Masaryk University in the Czech Republic found that young males from the summer generation of uh, these particular spiders uh, were the were the most likely cannibals here, and they tended to cannibalize older females of the previous spring generation. Huh. So male size and aggression seem to play a role uh, in all of this, uh, and uh, female virginity or lack thereof uh, did not. So in, this is another case where we're also getting a little bit of the uh, aggression spillover model in there as well. Okay. But... Uh, for the most part, it seems to come down to mate selection. Yeah, so it seems like we've seen a couple of scenarios where those two hypotheses are not necessarily in conflict. They can sort of work together. Right. You know, one of the things that uh, – this is kind of a side note, but one of the things that's been interesting to me in looking at this research is the different examples of – uh, I guess males that can continue the mating process after they have been partially consumed or dismembered. Oh, Yes. Uh, particularly, you see this with uh, with some of the the mantis species out there. Oh, right. Some yeah. mantids, the males can continue to mate after they had their heads bitten off. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think this is the case with some of the spiders too, right? They can like uh, they can inject a a sexual organ into the female, and then they can basically be eaten while those individual organs are still doing their work. Yeah, I mean, we already discussed uh, in one case where the the female mated longer with the males who were cannibalized. So it's kind of like. If I'm cool, again, to anthropomorphize, if I'm cool with having my head eaten off, I actually am going to get in there longer doing the thing that I am designed to do. So it makes sense, right? It makes so much sense. Yeah. <laughs> it's like she's going to eat me, but I'm going to be there twice as long. So right. It, 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 it all evens out. Now, there was another interesting finding that I wanted to talk about briefly, uh, which was about sexual deception in a cannibalistic mating system. Ooh. Uh, yeah. So so th- there was a paper published in 2014 called Sexual Deception in a Cannibalistic Mating System, Testing the Femme Fatale Hypothesis. And this was uh, by the, the scientist Catherine L. Berry in uh, Biological Sciences Proceedings of the Royal Society B., and this was a study of the female false garden mantis. Now, what the false garden mantis does is uh, she has pheromones that are taken as good faith signals of her fecundity, of, of how uh, likely she is to produce numbers of healthy offspring. Okay. Uh, so mantises that are in better health, they're in better shape, they're more well-fed, they uh, give off pheromones that advertise to males like, hey, I, I'm good to go. We, we are going to have lots of beautiful children together if you come mate with me. But also within this mantis species, there is some rate of sexual cannibalism where the female will eat the male uh, after or during copulation. So this study was supposed to examine uh, whether or not the females could lie using pheromones about how likely they were and what and how good health they were, you know, hmm. uh, to to the males who were coming up to them. So the females were given different uh, feeding regimens, essentially. Some of them got uh, very good nutrition. Others got medium nutrition. Some got poor nutrition and some got very poor nutrition. And then males were allowed to uh, – they were, they were given the opportunity to sort of approach a female that they couldn't see. They were visually obscured in the terms of the study. And, uh, and so they were just operating off of these pheromones that were put out by the females. And what the study found is that for most of these female mantises, the, uh, the rate at which the males would approach them seemed to be indicating there was good faith communication with the pheromones. So males were most likely to approach the good, the, you know, the ones who had been on a good feeding schedule and then a little less likely to approach the ones on the medium uh, feeding schedule. So so there was a, a pretty much correct advertisement system there, except for one case. Hmm. And that one case that did not fit were the females who had had the very poor feeding schedule, the ones who got fed the worst. And those actually attracted more males than any of the other female feeding huh. regimens, uh, even though that meant the females were in the least good health and they were the least likely to produce good numbers of healthy offspring. Ah, but they were the most in need of a good cannibal meal, right? Exactly. Ah. And so a previous study had found that these females were more likely to cannibalize males, the ones who had had the least to eat. So the hungrier the female is, the more likely she is to eat her mate. 
Now, studies necessarily uh, or have not necessarily found the same thing about other insects and arachnids, but in this one particular species, it seems that despite the fact that there's basically a, a, a correct or good faith pheromone signaling system, uh, there are some cases in which individuals will violate it <laughs> in order to eat somebody. Interesting. <laughs> wow. So we get, we get deception on top of uh, everything else that we're dealing with here. Now, there's one more paper I'd like to talk about that I thought was pretty interesting. It's not directly addressing uh, sexual cannibalism as its main focus, but it had some cool observations about it. And it's a paper called Conditional Monogony. Female quality predicts male faithfulness, and it was published in Frontiers in Zoology in 2012. So the premise of this paper is that males from lots of animal species display polygyny, you know, ha having lots of wives, mating with more than one female, mm -hmm. usually as many females as he can. But some animal species display, I guess, the inverse of that, monogyny, wherein the male only mates with one female in his entire lifetime. Now, this might be for multiple reasons. The male might be involved in, uh, for, uh, for example, parental duties, maybe. Right. Uh, but there, there are some species where that doesn't really seem to be the case, yet there is still just mating with one female in the lifetime. And this would include, especially to interest, uh, to our interest, several species of spiders. Now, th this is a quote from the paper. Uh, Monogony is associated with curious adaptations like lifelong associations between males and females. I like how that's a curious <laughs> adaptation. But also uh, extreme sexual size dimorphism, genital damage, and sexual cannibalism. Okay. So that just lays out the obvious that sometimes you meet that special person and that's the only person you want to be with for the rest of your life. Other times... They kill you and eat you. Or damage your genitals, yeah. <laughs> so uh, so now if you look at a male spider's sex organs, one, one thing you might see is that the male spider has these two copulatory organs called the pedipalps the, mm -hmm. that are used for copulation. These are sort of like miniature arms coming out of the spider's head. Also, it is likely that these organs will be damaged in mating. So essentially, the male spider has two detachable penises available for his mating budget. And the females, on the other hand, can mate multiple times. So the female spider has a pair of insemination ducts. These are her, her mating openings. And these can be, in a sense, plugged by a broken off piece of male spider copulatory organ. Does that ah. make sense? So he can, he can break off part of his pedipalp in her uh, insemination duct to prevent other male rivals from successfully coming along and mating with that same female. Okay, like a stabbing in a Cormac McCarthy novel where they snap the the blade off in the wound. Yeah, of. yeah, it sounds pretty violent mm -hmm. in our terms, but uh, but I, I guess this is how the spiders work. We we shall not judge. Now, this study in particular was focused on the orb web spider, known as the wasp spider, or Argiope bruiniki. And uh, a few mating stats from previous research. Uh, one is that in the laboratory, females are, quote, highly cannibalistic, and 80% of males are killed during their first copulation. That's a lot. It's pretty high, yeah. Yeah. They also say genital damage is very common in a bruiniki, and it occurs in 85% of copulations into unused genital openings. So there's a really good chance that you get your sexual organ broken off inside the female. 
And then on top of that, they say the broken off pieces remain in the female insemination duct in 97 percent of these cases. So the, these things, when they get broken off, are highly effective in plugging the hole so that other males can't come along and mate with the same female. Okay. So that's one positive reason for detaching one's penis during yes. the act. Gotcha. Uh, yeah, among others, I assume. Uh <laughs> No, I bet that's the only one. That, that may be the only one. <laughs> uh, but anyway, so since the male sex organs tend to get broken off, he has a choice. He has two of these things, mm -hmm. and he can spend them both on the same female. This would be the case of monogamy, right, uh -huh. mating with only one female in his lifetime. Or he can try to mate with two different females in his lifetime. Well, okay, so we see a, a, a form of mate selection here that he can, yeah. he can decide if this is – Definitely the one, so much so that he wants to double down on this mate selection or if he wants to save one, keep one in the chamber for labor, later use. Right. It's like if you're, uh, you know, you have, you're playing roulette and you have two chips. Do you right. put them on two different numbers or do you put them both on the same number? All in on Black Widow. Right. Yeah. Uh, so the researchers tested interactions between these spiders and they found lots of interesting correlations. For example, the size of the male did not seem to have any impact on the mating strategy, but the size of the female did. So when, when a male encountered a female for the first time, the bigger the female, the more likely the male was to use his entire mating budget on her to give her both of his sex organs. Also, uh, when a male mated with two different females, when he decided to spread it over two different, uh, two different numbers on roulette, mm -hmm. the second female he broke off a sex organ with tended to be heavier than the first. So he would tend to trade up for a larger female. The larger the female, uh, usually the more fecund. Well, like a lot of what we've discussed here in this episode, then that, that makes perfect economic sense. Of course. Uh, now, a few other interesting things they observed. One of them was that the rate of sexual cannibalism they saw in their study was much lower than what had been previously reported, that number we cited earlier. They mm -hmm. found that uh, the frequency of cannibalism on the first copulation, so the first time male and female meet up, uh, was 31.4 percent. So Not that's bad. lower than, yeah. than previous studies. Uh, but there was also one really funny complication of how this worked out in the lab. They write, quote, the monogamous males either copulated once, M1, this is what they call the group, M1, uh, which are males cannibalized after a single copulation or twice with the same female. In the M1 group, it cannot be decided whether males would have followed a bigamous or monogamous tactic if only they had survived their first copulation. So sometimes... <laughs> The male, he gets one broken off sex organ into the female, but then she eats him. And you can't tell whether he was planning on using both on her or moving on. Huh. That's right. Because she has uh, enacted her mating choice. Exactly. He can exercise his. Okay. Yeah. And, and related to that is that one thing they noticed was, I think this goes along with some of the other stuff we've read, how long a male mated during his first copulation was directly positively correlated to the rate of sexual cannibalism. So the longer he sticks around, the more time he spends locking down his copulation with this one female, the higher the chance that he gets slain and devoured. All right, now I want to read one more longish quote from their discussion section because I thought it was really interesting related to what we've been talking about today. They say, quote, 
Some of the monogamous males were cannibalized after their first copulation, while others used both of their mating options with the same female. While the latter can be interpreted as a clear-cut male decision, so if the male uses both on the female and then gets eaten, it sort of makes sense for him to get eaten, right? Right. Um, uh, they, they, they pick back up. Interpreting the decisions of single-mated males is more difficult. At least some of these males may have been forced into monogamy by aggressive females, while others may have chosen to sacrifice themselves to their mating partner already during the first copulation. Whether a male falls victim to sexual cannibalism during the first copulation is a direct function of its duration. Any copulation longer than 10 seconds, remember that number, uh, will most likely end with the death of the males, while males that jump off before 10 seconds have a relatively high chance of surviving. Indeed, copulation durations of single-mated males show a high variance, which suggests that some of them chose to copulate for longer in spite of sexual cannibalism being the likely consequence, while others attempted to escape but failed. Hmm. So, I, I don't know, I feel like that sort of drives home that when you're speaking about evolution, it's worth remembering that your body is sort of of little use to your genes once you've lost all of your reproductive potential. Yes, the male individual here is is a delivery system for the genetic material. But anyway, if you want to read that study, it's again, conditional monogamy, female quality predicts male faithfulness. It's pretty interesting and it had some other observations too. All right, so there you have it. Uh, We've, we've discussed sexual cannibalism, some of the theories regarding uh, its uh, evolutionary development in why, a handful of species. Why it seems like it might not make sense, but, in, but it probably does. Mm-hmm. And, of course, we've engaged in a fair amount of anthropomorphism, but still I felt like I was holding back in some of these cases. <laughs> so was I. <laughs> now, if you're a professional researcher in this field, don't take a page from us. Uh, try to do do the right thing be boring but be accurate and think like an insect yeah whenever possible all right in the meantime if you want to check out more episodes of stuff to blow your mind head on over to our website it's the mothership stuff to blow your mind.com where you'll find all the podcast episodes videos blog posts links out to our social media accounts such as facebook and twitter we are blow the mind on both of those we are stuff to blow your mind on tumblr and if you want to get in touch with us with uh, feedback about this episode or any interesting facts you've ever learned about sexual cannibalism you can email us at blow the mind at howstuffworks.com For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.